0: Hi, welcome to Breaking Bread. This is the show where we explore food through culture, conversations, and a whole lot of curiosity. I'm your host, Lo Yi Jun, a food writer and recipe developer from the Jun & Tonic site. On this season of Breaking Bread, we are diving headfirst into Malaysia's fine dining scene. We'll speak with renowned chefs and industry peers throughout the country to learn more about their journey, understand their cooking philosophies, and get an insider's look at the current state of the Malaysian food industry. Our guest for this episode is Nicholas Ng, who's a food writer, restaurant critic, bar reviewer, and travel blogger based in KL. Nicholas has over a decade's worth of experience writing and traveling for food, and now runs his own online food publication, Food for Thought. And so today, we'll hear about his story, talk shop, and learn a thing or two about appreciating fine food. So without further ado, here's Nicholas Ng. Hi Nick, welcome onto the show. Hi Jun, thanks for having me. Yeah so your job description is a is, uh, really long and like multifaceted. Um, but let's start with your
1: origin story so how did you first get into food? Well um, for me I started because I would say because my family has always been in the food industry and uh, so it's something that I've kind of grown up with you know from a very young age you know we'd go to like food shows, fine food shows and so I, I guess the exposure has always been there and we've always traveled for food and, and things like that. So I would say that's how it kind of kick-started, the, the passion. But to get into food writing, like I've, I've been a food writer for maybe 15 years now. And I've written uh, for various publications across the world as well, like from like in London and in well Malaysia, obviously, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Hong Kong. So I guess uh, I have a bit of a passion for this industry. Mm. yeah so you you were a food writer
0: for many many years but right now you also well you've started your own kind of food website called food for thought right how did that come about
1: yeah I would uh, I would I would consider it an independent publication because uh, I don't really have to uh, abide by anyone's uh, commentaries or or strict way of writing in a certain format or you know being nice basically but I mean, obviously, I'm not a mean person, <laughs> but uh, if you've read my website, I'm I'm quite a I'm quite a neutral person, and I'm here to help the industry grow in whatever small way I can. Mm. So, um, and it's to kind of just share more information, and and like uh, from from what I know about culinary, with you know whoever wants to read it. Mm, yeah, and I. I guess for our
0: listeners, I should also disclaim that me, me, and Necklace, we know each other through a mutual friend. Well, we we only recently got to know each other. I think probably a year ago, if not, if not less yeah, than yeah, yeah, not not too long ago. yes. Yeah, and I think you are one of the few people out there who has like I feel like a very special eye or a, a different perspective to reviewing and critiquing uh restaurants and the whole dining scene in malaysia so so i mean that's why i brought you onto this show to get your perspective and and perhaps like learn a thing or two from you on how you go about reviewing restaurants and and not just reviewing to be honest how you go about appreciating food in general yeah so can you tell us a bit about um the process behind what you do
1: well, for me, whenever I go review a restaurant or a menu, I, I usually look at a few things. Like, number one would be, you know, what is is this a cohesive menu? Is it telling a story? You know, then number two is like, you know, where, where are these ingredients coming from? Why are these ingredients being used? You know, I think that's very important to understand. Like It's, it's what I call like sustainability 2.0, true sustainability, you know, where you get ingredients around you at their peak and so for me it's you know i I'm, I'm trying to see what is being told on the plate is is the ingredients are, and the components on the plate are they there for a reason or are they there just for decorative purposes so for for me i kind of look at all these things and like you know and it also it really depends so let's say if i'm looking at japanese food you know i will look at you know how what's the quality of the shari the, the rice like like if i was looking at French cuisine, for example, for me, French sauces are very important. Like are the sauces broken? You know, are the techniques applied well? You know, like um if you're doing a confit de canard, is it actually, you know, rendered out well? You know, is it rightly salted? You know, there's a lot of this kind of things which I look out for. Mm. Oh, so it's uh, it's very broad. It's kind of like looking at Italian food as well. So, you know, is the pasta cooked well? Is, you know, is, is it like al dente? Is it properly cooked or you know, like you, you can taste the richness of the eggs used in the in freshly made pasta as well. Mm. So for me, it's it really depends on the cuisine, you know. So different plates, like there's different there are different things I look out for.
0: Mm, right, right, yeah. And and from the sounds of it, it seems like this requires almost like a very extensive knowledge, knowledge and understanding of of food and cooking, right? How did this come about? Like how how do you build this almost like a treasure trove of of knowledge that you have? Is it just through your pure grind
1: in the past 10-15 years of food writing? I, I would say that contributed to a lot of it but that's also a lot of just general understanding where food comes from and, and just tasting and I think the most important thing is to have a very open mind when you're eating food like you know, like I often get asked this question, you know, Nick, what is your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite cuisine? I was like, I said, you, like, I said there's a very unfair statement, you know? <laughs> I've, I've probably been guilty of asking you that myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, do you mean Japanese or do you mean French? Do you mean Thai? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you can't really compare Thai cuisine to Japanese cuisine, for example, you know, or French cuisine to Italian. Like it's quite different, like in essence, you know? But, well, one of my recent favorites, I would say it's uh, modern British cuisine, which uh, because I recently came back from London and it was very, very eye opening to the way they approach cuisine and approach food. And it's more raw. It's very raw. And they they take a lot of pride in the produce they use. And I think most importantly, respecting ingredients and, you know, respecting food cultures as well. You know, that's a right way to do things. Mm,
0: mm yeah, yes. so since you I mean since you mentioned uh, London and you do travel quite extensively as well, well, especially before this whole pandemic. Um, but from your travels and and from the whole like food cultures scene, the food scene in, in other countries, what difference have you seen between um, all the other countries out there that, that you've been to versus Malaysia, like our food scene? What what are some of the key differences that you've noticed?
1: I feel our industry here, um, it's it's still quite in its infancy, I feel, where there's a lot that still can be done. But, um, you know, I mean, we're talking in a fine dining context, right? Because if we are talking in a street food context, we are easily one of the tops in the world, you know? Any city you go to now, you can actually find a, a decent, like, curry laksa or, you know, a, a, any version of a laksa. So you know street food wise we are we are pretty pretty much like up there as one of the best in the world you know i mean cnn has consistently rated penang as one of a one of the best food destinations in the world so that aside but we're talking about fine dining you know we i feel we don't have enough of it here in malaysia and the ones that we have they are very good you know but i think Well, I mean, this is a personal observation of mine that I I find that restaurants really struggle to find educated diners. So, and when I say that, what I really mean is it's very hard to find people who can understand what the chefs are trying to do. So, you know, sometimes when, when, and, and people tend to pigeonhole restaurants, you know, they go, oh, are you looking for a French restaurant? Are you looking for a Japanese restaurant? Are you looking for Malaysian fine dining? You know, so let's say we talk about Malaysian fine dining, then you have like, obviously Dewakan is uh, leading this, you know, this fight. And, you know, you can see that, that that constant battle that they face because, you know, a lot of people don't understand what they're trying to do, you know, unless people who've been to like Noma, people who've been to like, eaten to like the, the Spanish style of fine cuisine, or, you know, then they will understand a bit more of what like restaurants like that are doing. But then again, mm-hmm. you have like, you know, people like Darren Chin, whose DC restaurant is, is, you know, one of the strongest restaurants in KL. And even then, you know, it used to be, people used to just think that they're a a French fine dining restaurant. But when you look at ingredients, you look at everything on the plate, it's, you know, like people's cuisine evolve and they change. So, you know, I would still say French techniques, but then use high quality Japanese ingredients, Asian ingredients, European ingredients. So, you know, is it fair to say it's a French restaurant, you know? Mm. So I think I think this conversation is, is a very broad one, you know, and, um, and I, I think every layer of society, like, struggles because, you know, fine dining, like, if we're being honest, it's not cheap, you know, it's not cheap for Malaysians. But, you know, for those who are fortunate enough to be able to eat, I think it's best if everyone has, you know, kind of keep an open mind to... To at least you can see when restaurants are trying to push the boundaries, and you know without pushing the boundaries, then we're not going to move at all. So I think you know we can be a bit more forgiving when things don't go our way, and appreciative when they do. I think that will kind of help build a community and industry here as well. I think we all have a part to play, you know, Um, even as consumers, even as patrons, and even as you know um, restaurants and chefs.
0: Mm. Yeah, it seems to me that we need a better appreciation or understanding or even like better education of food, right? But how do you think that can materialize? How, how can that happen in the next few years? What needs to
1: shift? Well, w- what I've kind of seen happening across the globe is there are a lot of fine dining restaurants, but people are also moving towards sharing and small plates. And sharing at small plates, they are much more affordable. So, you know, they come cheaper and, you know, and essentially ingredients are less. And and ba- basically what happens is more people can afford to try more elevated food. So for a, a good example, I, I recently came back from Paris and I was at Arpege, which is a three Michelin star restaurant. And classical menu, one of the, you know, one of the older ones, but they consider, like he's known like Alan Passat is known as the king of vegetables, you know. So like everything on the plate was impeccable from sourcing to ingredients to, and, you know, he basically like, you know, when asked, like he, he said, you know, like nature provides everything we need, you know, like an astounding man. And then, so after that, I went to this restaurant called Septim, which was also, the the chef actually came from, um, came from Arpesh but the plates have been completely different it's more small smaller plates they're not necessarily sharing plates but they are you know you can go through a degustation a five a three course or wait, a five course or seven course and you know you still see that skill on there but at a much more affordable rate you know so and i kind of see like you know i can see some chefs in malaysia trying to do that especially the younger chefs you know they are they're trying to uh, you know to tell a story in a plate and you know, I think what we kind of need from people is a bit more patience to, you know, like let let them, let them test the waters with flavors, and you know, if they are trying to do something that you can see effort is being put in, then I think we should try to support them.
0: Mm. And and you feel that this shared plate format will play a role in, I guess, like
1: educating the masses. You feel yeah I mean it's I, I I see it ironically as more entry level into understanding more fine dining
0: mm, so right, these right.
1: are basically the descendants of fine dining dishes right and you know when we when we look at the small plates they are basically you know telling it's, it's either up up leveling uh, street food into something more unique or it's kind of taking fine dining cuisine but making it more accessible. So the prices become so much more accessible, and then, but then you even have restaurants like Ontier, for example, you know, and Willow, who essentially have uh, you can get a three course fine dining lunch for like what hundred and twenty five ringgit, you know. So that's actually when you think about it, it's very accessible for the quality that you expect, you know. And these places they do very beautiful plates, you know. So that's a that's a lot of a, a lot of thought that goes into it.
0: Before we continue our conversation, we are going to take a quick break. Stay with us, you're listening to Breaking Bread on BFM
1: 89.9.
0: Welcome back to Breaking Bread. I've been speaking with Nicholas Ng, who's a food writer and restaurant critic in Malaysia. We're in the midst of our conversation about his journey with food and he shared the differences he's noticed when it comes to the dining cultures of Malaysia and elsewhere in his travels. And we'll be picking up our conversation from there. In your travels as well, have you noticed that there's this like difference in Malaysian Dining culture And the way that we Approach all these Like fine dining places Or even Yeah Even the ones you mentioned Like ontier Where it's not quite Super fine dining But uh, it's more Yeah It's more accessible as well And for us Malaysians It seems like we Always go to these places For special Occasions only Well at, at least uh, maybe it's like a generalization, but that seems to be the case. And and Chef Jun, uh, which uh, I interviewed last week as well, she was mentioning this occurrence that she's noticed. Right, whereas in other countries, perhaps mostly in like European countries or even uh, the richer Asian countries, like in Japan or Hong Kong, people go out um, to these places to dine not just for special occasions, but to really you know learn and appreciate the whole whole dining scene as well.
1: Yeah, well, I mean. I I I do agree and like well the reason that fine dining is it becomes occasional here is because of the affordability factors because yeah, our yeah. our like our ringgit is not as strong you know so let's say if you're living in Japan or you're living in Europe like you can like let's say if you're living in London you know you can have uh, for 60 pounds you can get a eight course fine dining lunch you know and so but then again, you know, when we look at cities like that, they're popular, like UK has, what, 80 million people or 60 or 80 million. I can't remember. But, you know, I mean, the higher your population, it also means there's much more experienced eaters, much more experienced producers mm. and much more experienced chefs. So when your competition is very high, it forces you into a crucible, right? And you just have to enhance your skill or you you, you fall off the game. And it's but it's also what keeps the chefs from challenging themselves. So I was recently at this uh, restaurant called Fallow in London. And, you know, I was there and I was talking to the chefs and and I was saying, Oh, I'm having lunch here, but then for dinner I'm going to Ikoi, which is just down the street. And they were like, Oh yeah, you know, we're good friends and you know, you, you, you sense that that you, you sense that element of camaraderie and you know and i think it's kind of like you know when like chef a sees what chef b is doing and they kind of push and challenge each other and i feel that that's how in a way that's how you 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 make you make the industry grow but you know but it's is but a pet peeve of mine is when you know you get a like a consumers who basically pit chef a against chef b going oh chef a should learn from chef b or <laughs> you know, what I mean, I I think that's uh, that's not helping anyone really. You know, like um, so I I don't think that that's very conducive for to to help. If, if say you're here to help grow the industry and help you know Malaysia build a better fine dining scene or a better dining scene in general, I think we should just try to support each other. You know, like like if you don't have anything good to say, just don't say anything at all. You know, mm. and feedback mm. should always be done personal. You know, like if. You know if you don't like something about a meal you know speak to like the maitre d' or speak to the chef if possible and you know relay what you like and what you didn't like but you know obviously respectfully mm.
0: um,
1: I because you know there are people too you know like people who don't run the kitchen have no idea what it's like behind you know the amount of hours you have to put in the amount of stress you know balancing numbers and finances and and you know making sure your ingredients don't go bad and managing stuff and So, you know, I think it's easy from the outside to just, like, make a throwaway statement. Mm. So that really doesn't help the industry, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and since you mentioned it, I I would love to shift
0: our focus to the, I guess, consumer or, like, reviewer side of the whole restaurant scene as well. So you spoke about how, you know, when you go about reviewing a restaurant if you don't have something nice to say then you rather not say anything at all and i was wondering if that if, if you think that is okay let me share from my personal point of view perhaps cuz i feel like that is a very kind of like asian mentality like if you feel a certain way like a, a negative way about some place or someone even it's mm-hmm. like you always keep it within yourself right but then when you when you see kind of like the standard of like food reviews elsewhere especially in like I guess the US or or in in European countries, the way they go about critiquing food or even like writing about food, yeah, they, they don't hold back as much when they have
1: something bad or something critical to say, right? Well, I mean, when you think about it, the people that we talk who can speak like that are people who have eaten and traveled well, right? And we're talking about food writers who really know where their food comes from. The reason they're critiquing it is because they understand that it can be much better, right? Mm. instead of coming from a criticism that you just don't really know any better and you're just... It's just because, oh, I did not like it. Like, you did not like it. It's not objective. You know, you have to critique it objectively, you know? Like, and that's the way I critique it. Like, so when I do a critique, I always think, okay, even if I don't like a certain thing, right? But would a general population or the general mass like it? So if they... If I think that they would like it, I don't see it as a fault. I just see it as a preference. Mm -hmm. So... And for me, I, I don't normally, I would say I don't normally have bad reviews. I just leave them out if I don't like something. So I'd rather not review. And, but I always try to relay my thoughts to the restaurants, especially if they ask for it. Because I don't like giving unsolicited critiques, you know? Yeah, I mean, like no one asked, you know? So, <laughs> so I don't really do that. Um, I, I, I tend to to critique when I'm asked to do it. Mm. Uh, you know when I'm asked like you know, of an opinion, then I will give it, but um in general if i if I don't like something, I would normally always tell the chef or the restaurant like you know I think these things need to improve, or if it's something that I feel very strongly about, then I would try to speak to the chefs personally or at least you know a member of the team who can relay those ideas right, 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 yeah, and how do you feel about the whole food review?
0: industry or food review scene over here in Malaysia?
1: Well, um I feel that there are a couple of people who I have a lot of respect for and I, I feel that they are trying to do something that is quite that helps build an industry as well, you know? And and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying pandering, you know, it's not pandering. It's, you know, they actually know or they're trying to increase their knowledge about certain things. And I I have respect for that. But I also feel there are a lot of people who are trying to be negative just for clout, just to gain attention or attraction in the wrong ways. And um, I I, I completely don't support that. Or especially, like, you know, like uh, people who have completely no idea what they're talking about. I think that that is also, but I always reserve my views on that to myself because, you know, I don't believe in naming and shaming, or. Mm, but do you have any examples of of people you think are doing like a
0: really good job and and are almost like beacons of of the industry?
1: Yeah, if we are looking at like let's say food writers in KL, I would say someone like Tian from Chewable. Yeah, he he's uh, he's he's also a friend, and uh, we have a lot in common, and we talk about cuisine quite a lot, you know. And mm. I think he's he's someone to to look for and well, uh, you know, Samantha, like, but she's, she's left KL. So mm, she's from, also, from Tatler. Mm. yeah, from Tatler. She's also quite into her food. So, um, but the, I mean, this, these are two people I, who I know quite personally. And I think part of the reason that we are close is because we have similar passions. But then again, I think, you know, we're talking about food writers. There are, they're not that many that I can really think of, or, you know, or basically that, I I find uh, like writing styles which I like you know right right and I'm not saying that we don't have them I'm just saying that I, I'm not aware of their work so you know they could be out there and I wish there was a way I could read more because I I'm, I'm a person who don't like my writing is very non-fluff based I don't I don't like fluff because I believe that ideas should be conveyed in the simplest way possible uh, I think this was probably from my legal training back in the days, but um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, ideas should just be, you know, you should convey ideas and not uh, linguistic gymnastics, you know? Mm. Um, but, but then again, you know, I think like even the writing styles have changed so drastically. I think my writing style is considered quite a bit more dated than the, you know, writers who are 10 years younger than me, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, to each is uh, their own and, there are many different styles of writing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and now there are so many
0: reviews yeah. that have gone over yeah, to, but that's, I guess, like TikTok even, like TikTok food reviews. <gasps>
1: it's a whole new world. Yeah. So when we talk about food reviewers, it's kind of like, are you conveying a story well or are you fetishizing a story, you know? So for me, mm-hmm. that's another bad beef. Like I, I'm not a fan of fetishizing culture and... You know, I feel like even with food, that happens, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, once in a while, you might be super impressed, right? But if you're super impressed every day or you are super (laughs) unimpressed every day, like, it also says a lot to, you know, you need to uh, kind of broaden your (laughs) perspectives a bit.
0: Mm, Yeah. So, I I mean, for this whole season, when... I'm interviewing chefs, I, I like to ask about like one dish that they came up with, and and go into the details of that particular dish and, and what it means to them. But for you as a food reviewer, I was thinking, could we go into an example of a review that you are particularly fond of, and and how you landed upon that review, and and like the whole process behind it?
1: Well, the last dish that really really stood out to me was. I mean, ironically, I, I want to talk about the Malaysian fine dining like dishes, but uh-huh. okay, I'll, I'll give you two, okay? The <laughs> one outside Malaysia that recently really impressed me was this dish at Ikoyi in London. It's a West African, modern West African-flavoured uh, restaurant because they're very careful to not say that they're a West African restaurant, you know? Um, so they had this dish which had caviar on top of pumpkin and uh, sesame seed milk. With this spice called uda, and it's one of the most interesting flavors I've come across. It's it tastes a bit like coffee. Oh, so can you imagine that combination? Right, that it's very, it's sweet, it's slightly bitter, it's aromatic, it's you know, it's like that nutty. So, mm. an sounding like very successful dish. So that was a really really interesting one. And locally, I can only say from the last meal I had, which was at Willow and uh, in W Hotel, they have this dish, which is uh, the octopus, which they're quite famous for. And uh, it's a deep fried octopus with uh, gochujang and pico de gallo. Mm. So it and the octopus was just cooked very, very well, you know, crispy, springy, you know, all the components that makes a dish very tasty. So. That is definitely like their signature dish. So that was a very very lovely dish. Mm, right, I've I've never had it before, but
0: yeah, from the sounds of it, it sounds like contrasting flavors that that might just work. Mm.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, in terms of textures, flavors. So yeah.
0: yeah, and so from your website, uh, food for thought, I also found a recent article that you wrote about the food trends of. 2022
1: ah yes yes i did yeah I can
0: you tell us a bit about about that and and what do you expect for this uh new year of food
1: so you know trends are very hard to predict right so mm-hmm. I, I do one every two years instead instead of doing one every year because you know we have to kind of look at a biannual like a mm. uh, timeline rather but i do see certain cuisines coming up and i think the eye of the world is turning to the middle east and africa right now so even the world's fifty best, they've recently launched this thing called the world's fifty best Middle East and North Africa. So, I I, I foresee that you know that that part of the world, the like the cuisine is really coming up. Because I was recent, like you know, I'm, I feel like a broken record talking about this, but I was racing in London and restaurant <laughs> called Coal Office, which does progressive Middle Eastern cuisine. It's some of the most interesting and unique ways of having Middle Eastern flavors that I've ever experienced before, like completely nothing that you would ever expect, you know, because we are so used to, I would consider it very street food level, Middle Eastern cuisine here, but they really take it up a notch. You know, they like the, you you taste harissa, but not, you know, like a, a lot of people misuse harissa here. Or like in the world generally, because they don't really understand the spice. Mm. So it's kind of like turmeric as well. You know, a lot of people misuse it. They put too much of it. And so like Harissa, for example, if you use too much of it, it becomes bitter. Or and, and that's just one example. So they had a really good dish, which was uh, it, it was a it was a lamb with coffee and rose, rose water. Oh wow. And like the best chickpeas I've ever had before in my life. So I was you know, that level of produce was also astounding. I I because I was asking, I was like, how is the chickpeas like that? And they went, you know, just because it's it's a very high grade chickpea we use. What what was uh what was so good about the chickpeas? Like it's just the texture. It felt like imagine if chickpeas and edamame had a baby. Oh wow. Yeah. So you know, you get that softer, firm bite from the edamame. But with the flavor of chickpea. Oh, cool. So, you know, you like like that's a that's a but I mean then again, you know, like it's a country where they can get extremely high quality produce at mm-hmm. you know
0: butter cost. And, and do stuff. you see Malaysia following onto this trend as well? Because it seems like African cuisine, and maybe not so much Middle Eastern, but African cuisine especially is quite underrepresented in, in our country, right?
1: Yeah, here definitely. And you know, I think Malaysia has we have an African population, you know. Not Maybe not as significant, but you know, I think a lot of them are students, and so obviously students are not chefs. So you know, it's very hard to bring that kind of cuisine. And even when you look at African cuisine itself, which was a cuisine I was craving for a very long time, um, you just don't get enough of. It's kind of like you know when you go to London and to look for a chakweyao, you know, I mean? <laughs> like the best char tiao in London still pales in comparison to the best yes. in KL yeah, skills sure. in comparison to the best chakra in Penang. <laughs> so, you know, I mean like we have to take things as they as they are. And it's kind of like, you know, we have to understand like um I don't like to use the word immigrant food because I I I feel that the word immigrant has a very negative connotation. Um but uh you know what's an immigrant versus what's an expat, you know? Um, you know I think that's uh like Malaysia like you know, we 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 can refine our food, and you 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 do see more and more restaurants pushing the boundaries and trying, and you know, like you get, they were kind of places like Chocha, for example. You know, like like they they do push the boundaries, and and it's very Malaysian at the same time. You know, mm. yeah, I think those are some examples. Could there be more? Oh, obviously, there's restaurants like in you know, in Penang, which is you know, I think. Uh, it's it's is modern interpretations of Malaysian flavors, you know. Like the last time I I had this uh this dish, it was like a chicken dumpling and a herbal essence broth. Mm, and, and this was at, at Edcon in Penang, is it? Uh no, they did a pop up in KL. Um, ah, got it. But but I'll be seeing them this or next week. So in Penang. Oh like yeah, so I'll be going to Penang for a week, and that will be quite uh quite an eye-opening experience. Nice, you're really, really, you're really traveling a lot. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. So I, I guess
0: we, we got a sense of like your hopes um, for the Malaysian uh, dining scene in yeah. the next few years, like following on to certain trends or, or even like expanding the whole repertoire of like Malaysian, um, Malaysian fine dining. But from yeah. a uh, consumer or from a eater point of view, do you have any
1: hopes for the Malaysian public? I, I mean, one thing I do hope is that people are willing to broaden their experiences and not, you know, or, or not turn their nose up when people say, oh, this Malaysian fine dining, you know, like the, the biggest thing that you always hear is people going, oh, why am I paying so much for Malaysian food? Why am I paying so much for local flavors?
0: Mm.
1: Why not? You're not paying for the flavors. You're not paying for the food. You're paying for the skills. You're paying for... You know, maybe you see it as a cultural tax, you know, is our, well, we are paying our, cul- like, a tax for our culture or, you know I mean? Like, why why are you willing to pay, you know, a thousand ringgit for a meal in Bangkok, but you're not willing to pay for a thousand ringgit for a meal in KL? I mean, obviously, with the caveat that if you can afford it, you know? Yes. Yeah. But, um, but if you can't afford it or, you know, you're looking for something that is that's more affordable, there, there are a lot of restaurants that allow that as well. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. restaurants like Chocha, you know, like the smaller plate ones, a lot of them have uh, are way more affordable and, you know, they can showcase a lot more of our uh, local interpretations and skills. But if you ask me if there's one cuisine that I want to see properly elevated into fine dining, it's actually Malay cuisine. I feel they're not enough or it, I don't think there are any proper Malay fine dining restaurants that... Is actually at the level of fine dining of refinement, mm. and I think maybe part of the struggle is you know people feel that Malay food should be cheap, but why should it be cheap if your skills are there, your your presentation and and all of those things? Then, mm. like you know, I think that's more than important to to focus on.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: there's this whole thing where if our cuisine remains
0: cheap, right? It will never. Yeah, it's going to be very hard to penetrate into the whole, like, international food stage. And and it's very hard for us to get visibility. Like, the natural example people draw is, like, in Singapore, as their hawker food gets more well-known. Like, there are so many different tiers of it. Like, that. There, there are people taking inspiration from hawker food and turning it into more atas affairs. Yeah, um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so, so that is important for the whole growth of the industry as well. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, let's say, when you look at what J5 is doing in Bangkok, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, a hundred ringgit crab omelette, right? Yeah, and she's located in like it's a hawker. It's a hawker store, actually. Yeah. So, what she's done is she's taken you know really expensive ingredients and refined a cooking technique and and made made it a world class dish. You know, mm. and that's why I'm very very uh, excited to wait for Darren Chin's Sky to open, which is uh, based on his mother in law's uh, uh, Thai cuisine, like Chiang Mai cuisine and like I've tasted some of the dishes, and I think a lot of people in KL have had over the MCO as well, because uh, they were doing deliveries and all of that. So that is a restaurant that I, you know, I'm kind of looking, and that's what I mean by how how do you elevate something that is that that feels like street food into something very refined, you know? And it's the quality ingredients, you can do that, you know, cooking styles, refinement, and you know, and the whole shebang. So. That's my hopes for twenty twenty two that, you know, you see more restaurants that, you know, can elevate and and push boundaries to that level.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that brings us uh to the tail end of our interview here. Obviously, there's so many different aspects of this <laughs> and so many different rabbit holes that we didn't actually get to explore. Um, but we'll we'll probably have to bring you on for a part two or even maybe a part three uh conversation on the food industry in Malaysia. But for now, just to end, where can people find you and keep up to date with uh,
1: what you do? Okay, great. Um, well, my website is foodforthought.com.my, uh, but you can also find me on Instagram at foodforthoughtmy and my drinks account, which is tipple.my. And mm. you know, I, I, we, we actually, we hardly got into talking about the drinks industry here as well, which is- so- Oh yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So yeah, that's where you can find me cool yeah and thanks so much for your time today man You're welcome uh well it's always a great chat june i love talking food with you so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and thanks for sharing your thoughts i i did learn a lot and like you know how to approach and appreciate food a bit better than i did before so thanks so much for coming onto the show thank you june That is all for this week's show. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or on the BFM app. And if you're hungry for more food news and fun recipes, you can keep up to date with me on Instagram. I'm at Tonic. that's J-U-N dot A-N-D dot T-O-N-I-C. This is Jun signing off. You've been listening to Breaking Bread on
1: BFM 89.9.